Introducing Rosalie Salceda. Rosalie grew up in San Joaquin County, graduating high school and the Army JROTC program in Manteca, California. Upon graduation, she enlisted in the Army Reserves in response to the terrorist attacks on 9-11. She later enrolled in classes at San Jose State University to pursue her bachelor's degree and a commission as an Army officer. After separating from the military, Rosie inspired her husband to also leave the military so that they could begin raising their family back in her home community in San Joaquin County. Since returning, she has earned her teaching credential at the Teachers College of San Joaquin and a master's degree in education entrepreneurship from the University of the Pacific, Bennard School of Education. She currently teaches freshman English at Lincoln High School in Stockton, California, where she also serves as an advisor to Lincoln High School's LGBTQ organization, Gender and Sexualities Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us today at Educators Not Robots, where we humanize the educational experience. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you are using. Positive reviews help us reach a wider audience and share these incredible stories of everyday teachers. And now we introduce to you, Miss Rosalie Salceda. All right, so how are we doing? <laughs> I've been looking forward to finally getting you on the show in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking forward to that, but we're here. <laughs> no, um, definitely, I'm definitely biased. So <laughs> this is probably gonna be, I don't know how how, how to explain this. Different. <laughs> definitely different. Uh, you know, you're gonna see the gentler, kinder side of Anthony today probably <laughs> i'm playing all right so where do we begin please tell us tell us what is going on in the world of the trailblazer miss rosie salceda what's going on <laughs> okay so your trailblazer reference because of the award i just won for the cal calvet female veteran trailblazer award that you nominated me for behind my back and I won, so there's that. Um, was it due to the excellent nomination? It was a really good nomination, which uh, <laughs> you read an excerpt from for the for the intro to this. <laughs> so that's right. It was so good. I had to use it. I was like, All right, let me use this again. It's a shortened version of it. Um, so that's happening on Wednesday, virtual reception. Uh, myself and I don't. How many other females won? think three others so there's four of us that are being recognized don't quote me on the number i didn't really pay attention maybe there's usually shout out calvet though yeah <laughs> holler thank you for our recognition um i thought it was a, a pretty sweet thing that they're doing they were they were specifically looking to recognize first responders and educators so it just seemed like the right thing to do <laughs> and i always love embarrassing my wife <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> definitely caught me off guard. <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't even know that there was a Calvet Award. I'm still learning what Calvet is. <laughs> so maybe that's a good thing to mention. So Calvet is actually an organization for veterans, uh, basically running run by the state of California. There you go. So yeah. uh, I'm a veteran service representative for the 
County of San Joaquin. And so I, I work regularly with a lot of the Calvet, um, I won't say employees, but with the policies, I guess, and the programs and the benefits that uh, Calvet offers to veterans. And it just so happened that I was looking at stuff online <laughs> and there was this Trailblazers award going on and I could not resist. So that's that's that story. Yeah, and then I got a text while I was teaching class that, hey, you won. And then an, um, a screenshot of the email from Calvet saying, congratulations, we've selected you. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was kind of weird. <laughs> Um, but super cool, um, because it's nice to be recognized for things. So yeah, that was cool. So there's that, that's going on. Uh, there's this pandemic going on and <laughs> being a teacher during this time is pretty rough, but, um, been teaching virtually Lincoln high Lincoln district is full virtual right now, but there's discussions about bringing us back, back on campus, which has caused a lot of controversy because, mm. you know, we're going into flu season. We haven't even started the second wave yet. Um, I haven't had time to look it up, but I, we were talking because I'm a, a site rep, a union site rep at my at my school site. And we were talking, the other reps and I, about um, the governor's kind of, I guess, made it clear that he's not going to close. He's not going to do a closure anymore. Um, I don't. I don't know how true that is, to be honest. I feel like those are, that, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like if he's saying that, because I haven't been paying attention, but if he is saying that, in fact, we're not going to do a closure anymore, that he's conveniently bringing that up right before election. Mm. Um, so, because we do know that a second wave is coming. And I remember telling you about a few days ago that the cases in Europe have spiked. In Europe, in some in some of those places, we're doing better uh, social distancing than we have been. So, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to, um, I guess, create plans based on predictions that I don't know. There's, I think there's a lot of variability here, but it is interesting that there are a few schools that are o operating openly. Correct? Yeah. In the county. Yeah. So there's different schools in and throughout the county, like Manteca Unified. Um, has students that have come back on campus, I think, in a hybrid model. Mm. Um, there's schools that are fully in person. Those tend to be the private schools. Um, every school, every school district did something a little different. Um, I think it would be really cool if a school district was just like, you know what, we're not going to treat our teachers like garbage. Like, we're going to stand up for our teachers and do what's in their best interest. Like, that would be super cool. But I haven't seen a district locally that's done that, where they've just stood up and said, we're not going to do this. Like, we're going to do the right thing and protect our teachers. Hasn't really happened. It'd be cool, though. I don't know. I think that's a military person in me. Just like if somebody was trying to, you know, like when we were back in the Army and we, our platoons were getting chosen to do all kinds of crazy tasks and getting to a point, or our companies even, getting to a point where a company commander would turn around to a battalion commander and be like, you know what, sir, like, I understand you got these needs that need to be met, but my soldiers are, they're they're done. Like, we've, you've run them down to their very last bit of energy and we need, I need you to, I need you to reconsider who's going to do this task. I guess what I'm saying is the districts are being a bunch of yes men right now. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. They're being a bunch of yes men instead of like protecting their people. There is sort of like, 
it seems, and you know, not to get too deep into uh, <laughs> district relations, <laughs> but it is a bit op- oppositional, or at least um, that they have a number of different considerations and teachers' well-being isn't always on the top of the list, which, yeah, no, maybe that's just the way things have been for a while, and uh, maybe it's time for some change, and maybe you're going to help, help, maybe this podcast will help change some of that <laughs> stuff going on. Maybe <laughs> maybe we just need to get them to listen and, and hear what's going on uh, with, with the teachers and how, how things have been how things have been going i guess i i just feel like there isn't enough communication i I get the sense at least from what i've heard that it's not a very open communication sort of relationship no i think that's cultural too i don't think it's just our district or districts in san joaquin county i just get a sense that just systematically communication between teachers and and districts has been pretty tense and sometimes ineffective um it's oppositional i mean by nature it is oppositional and then there's issues like that get brought up with with the union because we are union members and unions are a great thing like i mean earlier before the recording we're talking about dolores huerto who's like my idol and is best known for the work she did in establishing unions and they've done such great things for for labor and people you know working class people um, but they're definitely demonized. Um, and and not to say that all unions are perfect. I think there's obviously corruption is possible anywhere. I, I think it would be silly to assume that there's any organization or system that can be developed without corruption. Um, there's always going to be somebody trying to figure out a way to cheat <laughs> or to be selfish, you know. But overall, I think if we were to go back into our history, unions have been super beneficial to the American people. And um, I just feel like there's like a lot of anti-union rhetoric that comes down from districts and politicians and school boards. And it's just not effective for the teachers um, or for, for communication in general. And there's like stuff right now on the election. Cause I think like this kind of goes off topic. I think prop 22, which is about the Uber drivers or something mm-hmm. is like a really anti-union proposition that is getting a lot of backing from uber and lyft right right they just want to continue paying them as contractors rather than as employees right right but then like from what i heard like the request was though that they need protections and that's why prop 22 was put on the ballot but anyway like i don't know so all of those things factor into like the breakdown of communication and i think whenever teachers ask to be considered in the plan as somebody whose well-being needs to be cared for the um the weapon the way that that the way that we're responded to is that um we're we're being selfish and not thinking about students when all we do is think about our students mm-hmm. <laughs> like, i mean we do so much uh, we're contracted i don't know if people understand this we're only contracted for the hours that we're in front of kids but we have to make our own lesson plans. We have to grade our, the homework that we assign. We have to create our own handouts in a lot of cases and print those handouts and set up our Google Classrooms and do all that stuff. That stuff's not happening when we're in the classroom with students. Like, I don't I don't know if people really think about that. Like, how do I plan a lesson, create handouts, 
print handouts when I have 35 students sitting in the room waiting for me to teach them something. It doesn't happen during those times. It happens in between those times. And so we're doing a lot of work outside of our hours. Like when we tell you we're doing that, you have to really consider that. There's also like a really cool little, it's not cool, it's kind of sad actually, but there's like a graphic I've seen go around on the internet and I've even posted it on my Facebook that shows the time. It's like a little like a little table and it shows if you have, so I have 155 students. Mm-hmm. So if I'm grading an assignment, oh, right, right. yeah, if it's, if it takes me one minute per worksheet and I, I don't do worksheets, I do, um, I do essays. So if I spent one minute per essay times 155, I'm spending 155 minutes on grading essays. But of course, I'm sure all of you are thinking a minute on one essay, like that's not <laughs> enough time because it's not. So and then it, but it goes through, it's like, what if I spent five minutes on that essay? What if I spent 10 minutes on that essay and 15? Multiply that by how many students I have, which in my case is 155. That's how much time I'm spending grading. And that's not happening when I'm engaged in a lesson with my students. So we are working outside of our hours. Like, I don't know how many times we can say that, but my, my argument has always been, um, especially coming from the military, because the military has actually taken on this philosophy and they're not great at it, but they're better at it than the education system (laughs) is that if you're not taking care of the person, the employee, the soldier for the military and for the education system, the teacher, then that person is not going to be effective at the mission. That person, if that person's distracted with all of the, the things going on at home, all of the, you know, the, the bills that need to be paid, um, the illnesses that are happening, you know, being able to, to make time to go to the doctor or having issues with family at home, um, having vehicles that work, like all of those things, if those things are, are becoming distractions, then the person who works for you, that person is not focusing on their job. So that's always kind of been something that's really been hard for me to transition is a culture shock. Mm is that in the military, um, generally a lot of things were taken care of for us. Like we didn't have to pay anything for our medical. Um, we didn't have co-pays or anything. We just showed up when we needed to, made appointments when we needed to. And those appointments were beneficial in most cases. And then, and we didn't have to go through a whole process to get a day, you know, to go to our appointment. You could show up at work in the morning and let your supervisor know, Hey, I need to go to the doctor at one o'clock and they'll say, okay, I'll see you then, you know, at two, you'd go and just drive down the street because the doctor is right there. You go get, get your appointment done and then you'd come back and go to work and it wasn't a big deal. It didn't, you weren't docked pay or anything like that. Um, we, we received benefits for dependents. We received housing allowance. Um, we had all these programs available to us like a uh, JAG for our law need our legal needs. Um, mental health services are available on post in like multiple areas, right? Like we had TRICARE, but we could also use the military family life counseling. We could use the chaplain. We could use Army One Source. Like there was all these mental health services available, like all these things. And they were all on post. Oh, and the daycares were on post too. So like we had a lot of stuff taken care of and we didn't have to worry about it. Where now it's like nothing is taken care of. And you have to figure out when are you going to get all these 
all these other aspects of your job that are necessary, like developing lessons, creating the actual worksheets and handouts and platforms that you're going to use online to conduct those lessons, printing out the paper, making sure you have materials in your class, like all those things have to happen while we're teaching at the same time. Like that's, that's the only time we get paid. And oh, and you don't pay us enough to be able to meet our needs, like our basic financial needs, like paying our mortgage and buying groceries and stuff. And you and you expect me to not be distracted when I'm engaged with 35 students per mm. per, you know, every 55 mm. minutes for five times a day. Oh, and I also need to like build a relationship with those students because I have students, especially at Lincoln, if people aren't aware, Lincoln has a really diverse population. We have students who come from wealth and we have students who are extremely poor and in some cases homeless. Actually, mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, I don't think I've ever had a year where I didn't have a group of homeless students in my in my roster. Um, so I have to be able to engage with students who come from all walks of life and the ones who are living in poverty, who are homeless, who have certain medical needs or special education needs, um, they need a little extra attention. And, and, and actually sometimes the wealthy students and the ones who come from more privilege, they need attention too, because they actually come from a culture that's very different from the one we've come from. Um, and their, their emotional needs are not met in the ways that I think we assume wealthy families meet the needs of their kids so i've had a lot of kids who came from wealth who had a lot of emotional distress and needed to connect with a teacher and sometimes i was that teacher who they connected with to find respite and a place to vent and you know um and try to help them balance their time because they're taking like five ap classes at once and yeah. are expected to go to stanford and are going to be a doctor when they really actually want to go to the san francisco's um art college and be an artist but mom and dad insist you will never be an artist because oh my. my child won't be an artist and they're crying to me because they're like why can't i just be what i want <laughs> you know so all of that just to say that like yeah like we if you're not taking care of the adult in the room you're not taking care of the students that are in that same room like i, I don't know how else to say it and that's really frustrating we've had discussions definitely um about the shortfalls of what's provided for teachers for support. Um, I mean, most people kind of have an understanding that you don't really get into teaching to make a lot of money, which is a kind of an odd thing if you think about it, because it's a pretty important part of society. Yeah. <laughs> you think that yeah, that would be reflected, um, and teacher salaries wouldn't be, you know, any, you know, any less valuable than. I don't know, other other important positions, like, say, a police officer. Oh, they make way more money than us. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I, don't even get me started, right? I know. Yeah. That was, I don't even remember the notes I took a few months back where a, a brand-new cop makes, like, triple what a brand-new teacher makes. And I think I looked at Manteca. So Manteca Unified is the highest paying in the county um, for teachers. And the city of Manteca also pays the highest for their law enforcement and i think if i don't remember but i think it was like a brand like twice as much yeah yeah it was a, a brand new cop makes about twice as much as a brand new teacher and More that's a cop a cop who is only with a high school education and a teacher has to have at least a bachelor's degree and a credential right 
And yeah, a brand new cop still makes about twice the amount of money as a college educated, credentialed, brand new teacher, which is ridiculous. But um, it's interesting because yeah. it's from a position understanding, like, uh, I guess the the price of knowing how to, I don't know, put yourself in, you know, in, in harm's way, perhaps. Like every, everyone sort of understands, like, okay, part of the part of the cost of of employing a police officer is kind of uh, paying for that risk, right? Mm. But I don't know. I think that there's a lot of different kinds of stresses in, with every position, and and I think you have to compensate, uh, like you're saying, based off of not only what what they're going to potentially experience, but also the type of credentials they bring to the table. So I think it's really, yeah. Well, the other thing obvious. too is we know, we know this, we shouldn't have to say this, but we're, I'm going to say it. <laughs> the, the better you, the more you invest in education, the more you boost the economy and lower crime. Right. And so it's like, do you want, I mean, I guess paying our cops more is a great reactive tool. Like right. you're, you want to put out fires but if you invest in education, you prevent fires from starting right. in the first place. Any investment in a preventative system is going to be uh, the better investment. Um, anyway, I think that also going back to the way that it was in the military, it's a very interesting thing that uh, it's the military that serves as an example of sort of what good um, universal healthcare would look like. Or what federally run hospitals would look like, and um, I think it's actually a really great example of it working really well. Uh, every soldier, you know, airman, whatever, whoever else is in the military, <laughs> yeah, all the rest, everybody gets that healthcare available to them. And it's really interesting because then, as a veteran. If you're service connected, you you also get healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of a, a a little you know detail there. But service connected, just if you had any type of injury while you're in the military, that somehow is affecting you after you're done with the military, uh, you can be considered a service connected uh, a disabled veteran. And for the purposes of VA healthcare, that that actually gets you eligibility. Um, Anyway, so you can have federally run health care uh, from the moment you begin your career in the military to the moment you get out and then become a veteran. So it's really an interesting thing that this is where we have already established these types of programs. And if we were ever to see it on a scale, I guess, a, a larger scale and extended to other populations, I think that'd be a great place to start. Um, and I don't think of I can't think of any better candidate for where we we should include uh, than 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 the educators in our country. I think that'd be really badass if we somehow figured out how to you know uh, organize all educators into like this is now now I'm just spitballing, but <laughs> like wouldn't it be crazy if there was a way to get a national credential, let's say, and so that every every educator gets like a month of training somewhere. Uh, that's naturally nationally credentialed and then and then and in doing that they're able to then qualify for eligibility for educators healthcare or something like that yeah that'd be freaking wild like i mean you know that's just 
an idea. That actually makes me think of something else too that I I, I know is going to be an unpopular opinion, but I've I've shared it before and I'm going to share it again. So, and this comes from our military experience also. So we mm. know. I don't think civilians really know. That, I know they don't know this, <laughs> but. The way the military works is the majority of what soldiers are doing. Now, soldiers are doing their everyday job in order to keep the organization running. So, like, the jobs that we we train for, we train for our jobs to be able to conduct them on the battlefield in war. But we also are able to conduct them in garrison during peacetime to keep the army running, to keep our companies running, our battalions, our brigades, and all that. It's called readiness. Readiness, yeah. We, <laughs> we, we're, we're either, so that's either what we're doing. We're either in the, in the midst of readiness or we are in war. Now, in addition to just keeping the daily, you know, organization, organizational tasks up and running, we're training. When we're not on the battlefield, we're training. And pretty much what taxpayers pay service members to do is to train to do their job in war. Now, teachers work from around August till May-ish, at least that's Lincoln, like it's, it varies a little from district, but you have two months where you're not working and we're not paid for those two months. So I think that's, there's one thing that I wanna bring put into context here. Mm is that what happens is we can request to have to receive a little bit less money to have some money deducted from our monthly pay and then we get all of that money in the summer so it feels like we're getting paid 12 months out of the year but really that money was taken out of our um, during the school year so we're not paid for two months out of the year mm. because we have a summer break um, and, and so I don't, I don't even like calling it a summer break. It's, it's, it's two months out of the year when I'm unemployed because I'm not being paid. Mm-hmm. Um, in my mind, a more effective way would be, we should be working 12 months out of the year. And those two months that school is not in session, we should be training for the battlefield, which for us is being in the classroom. We should be getting professional development from best practices like what i mean and that's that's the thing if we want to do a lesson and or curriculum that is based on research best practices for implementing whatever curriculum or lessons we want to do a lot of times we have to do that research ourselves we have to be the ones who seek out so this is wild this is wild because prior to being married to a teacher i had no idea that you actually are doing most of this independently, mm-hmm. uh, even independently from one another in the same department. Mm-hmm. And I was that blew my mind. I was like, I always thought there was like a teacher meeting where all the teachers across the land <laughs> would get together and say, "This is what we're going to force these children to read," and you know, this is this is going to standardize the lessons. But it's it's not quite that way. No, it's it's actually is district to district and school from school. So there are schools across the country where mm-hmm. they're teaching teams. They call them um, PLCs, professional learning communities, and it's it's groups of grade alike teachers who come together, content alike and grade alike, and they collaborate at least once a week or whatever. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what time and space is being provided by the district. Mm. So um, in our case, we don't get a lot of that time. And so we've had to um, we had to create that time. Mm. Last year, we requested a group of uh, freshman English teachers and I requested to get the same prep period, which is we have five prep. So we, we teach five classes a day 
And then one of, one of the classes is our prep, or I'm saying this wrong. So we teach five <laughs> classes a day. So our school offers seven class periods. So there's mm-hmm. a first period all the way through a seventh period. Teachers at our school teach five out of the seven. One of those, the sixth one is our prep and it can show up anywhere, right? And so for us, we had one that showed up in the middle. Um, it was our fourth period prep. And so we asked if we could all have the same prep so that we could collaborate with each other because mm-hmm. we all had the same same prep period off. Then we, we were all available at the same time and we can collaborate. We had to request that. It had to be organized. Um, it wasn't something that was... You would think like that it would just been a natural like oh we can make that it wasn't as easy as it sounds Mm-mm. because it's never really been supported, um, and um, and then and now with virtual learning we are following the exact same schedule that we would if we were in person so we are teaching five classes a day for fifty five minutes starting at the same time it would if we were in person ending at the same time if we were in person. And um, we need to collaborate more than ever because we're teaching in a, in a style that we're not used to. Um, we don't know what the best practices are for this. They do exist. They do exist because colleges have been doing hybrid models and online learning for at least a decade, if not more, right? And so we can take a look at at least the university level best practices and formulate those to work with you know, the high school and the elementary school level. But we're not being given the time to do that. We're not being provided the resources to read up on that. We're not being provided the trainers on doing that. Um, We're not being given the time. We requested that our time change. So some schools, they're actually the state allowed um, some districts. I think we're required to do, I don't remember. There's a certain amount of hours we're required to complete over the course of a school year. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, the state actually gave leeway to districts saying, you don't have to meet the full requirement during this time. You can back off a couple hours so so that schools could give teachers more collaboration time. So it's less classroom time more collaboration time. Our district didn't take that offer. So um, <laughs> so we're being asked to figure it out as we go. We're not being given the training. Um, they provide some training here and there that's not as effective. And even though when we tell them like, that's great, but we need more of this or more of that, they don't wanna hear it. Um, and our district's not the only one who's behaving that way, but I just, I'm gonna speak for the one I'm in. And um, and so with that said, and this is during the pandemic, you think that this would reveal like this is to me, the pandemic is revealing the problems we've had all along. These problems have existed even when there wasn't a pandemic. We have not had enough time to collaborate even when there wasn't a pandemic. Right. Now there is one. It's more important than ever that we develop a system that gives us time for collaboration, for best practices, for training and all that. So my argument is we should be working 12 months out of the year and that we shouldn't have this summer vacation. Teachers should be working 12 months out of the year. Now, a lot of teachers are not gonna like that because first of all, this system <laughs> has been the same for decades. Like, mm. I don't even, this is how it's always been. So uh, there's a lot I'm of- actually people- uh, like, really curious about, um, it, has it always been this way? Like, I don't say like, always, but I guess in America or in California, has it always been organized this way? Because I know there are some school districts in the United States that do have like a full year calendar yeah, like, and there's some districts that yeah, I remember in the '90s, like when I was in school, there were there were schools that went to um, they changed their schedule so that they were year round because there's a, so there's a couple things like studies have shown that the summer break actually is detrimental to students because they forget what they've learned. Mm-hmm. 
I guess in that case, they never really learned it. But even still, like they're not, they're not practicing. It's harder. Yeah, it's harder. You you need to maintain the practice. But then for teachers, my argument is that, well, that's perfect time for us to be training. If we're not going to bring students back, fine. But we should be training. We should be training all the time. And we should be given space to collaborate. We can get the majority of that collaboration done. What are our grading practices going to be? What is our syllabus going to look like? What lessons are we going to do? What what books are we going to read? What's the curriculum going to be? We could have everything planned out by the time the school year starts. Um, and then implement it. And it'll make things easier because we will have all worked together on ideas and collaborated and the best practices. And then we will all know, like, we're all on the same page. If we... So this brings me to the next thing. So what pe- the one thing people are going to argue about first and foremost is, but I want my two months off. <laughs> you mean teachers? Yeah. yeah. Teachers are going to yeah, want yeah. that. And and one of the arguments is because we work so hard during the school year, we need two months to recover. Right. But my argument is if we are being proactive in our practices, because what's happening, the reason we're exhausted is because we're reactive. We're constantly reacting to little fires that get put up all the time there's constant fires bursting left and right and we're just constantly putting them out right if we're proactive and we develop systems that prevent those fires from starting or at least give us um, procedures on how to deal with little emergency fires and things like that Mm. we put things in place that make it so that we are trying to cover all our bases in the best way possible and we're doing it together and we're receiving the resources and the training in order to make that happen in the best researched way, we're not going to be as exhausted during the school year because we're going to be working as a team. And furthermore, so then, so people are going to be like, well, what about, you know, their teachers are used to taking a summer to go on vacation and all that. I think that the leave policies and the vacation policies, we, they're terrible. Like, I mean, (laughs) you know this because I've, so I am a disabled veteran. I have a lot of illnesses. I've already, I were allotted six sick leave days a year. I've used them all already because I have um, a mental disorder and I had a panic attack and I was asked to stay home by my doctor. Um, she asked because she knew that it might be um, detrimental to my work. And I, but I knew I needed the time off. I had a panic attack. I also had a migraine. I had physical pains. I had a migraine that lasted for 10 days. This was also during the fires, right? So we had, we were covered in smoke out here in San Joaquin County. And, um, my anxiety has been through the roof during the pandemic, which is expected. So first of all, the sick leave policies are ableist. Like, I'm just going to say that they're very able to only get 60, six days off a year is ableist. Well, that's six paid days. There's six paid days. Now, how many is there? What what's the number for like non-paid medical leave? Uh, is it like FMLA or something? The FMLA, yeah. yeah. And then there's like certain rules on how you can apply for that. Okay. So, um, but those don't exist if you, if you are if you qualify and if the district approves it. Right. Right. So it's not exactly like as easy as it sounds. So anyway. They're ableist and also it also is very patronizing that it's like you're only going to get the days off when everybody gets the days off. You only get the holidays off, right? Mm-hmm. In the military, let's talk about the military again This is because <laughs> this is the only experience I had. Right. You develop 2.5 days for every month you're on active duty. Right. And then as and so you build your leave, you earn your leave. And then as you build your days, you can start planning like, okay, like I built up 20 days of leave. I think I'm going to go take seven days off in the summer or whatever. And then you put in a request and we have policies and procedures for how you put in those requests. 
And like most jobs. Like most jobs do, right? And one of those rules, one of the policies I remember is that within your company, in your unit, so how do you translate that? That would be, let's say, in your school site. You There's a policy that says only this many people, this percentage right. of people um, are allowed to be on, on leave. So it would be like 20% of the school, right? So 20% of your staff can be on leave at any given time. So, so when you go to put in your leave request, that's something that would be put into consideration is like, okay, so this teacher wants to take a week off in March. How many other teachers are going to be off at the same time? Probably not 20% of the, the school, right? So there, so there's policies like that. And then in addition, they also consider like what important things are going on during that time. So if we're doing SBAC, for example, that might be a time where teachers are less likely to get What's time the SBAC off. Again? So the SBAC is the state standardized test. Right, right, we right. used to, well, I don't know what you guys did in Virginia, but we took the star. So, um, I forget the name. so yeah. there's like important things that are going on that are taken in consideration. So in the army, it would have been in like a training exercise. You don't want to leave during a training exercise. So that, and then there would be holiday considerations and like all this stuff. But basically you put in your leave, there's a process. I think even like it was like you want to put it in a certain amount of time in advance, you know, to to be to allow the process. And I remember being told every time I went to a unit like okay, like you want to make sure you put your leave in 6 months in advance because this is the process it goes through. Very transparent about the process. Right. And so then you go in understanding that but of course, emergency leave comes up and there's procedures for that as well. And you take your time off when you need it. And I think that's a more professional way to treat an employee, especially one with the level of education that we all have and the amount of work we put in to just be in the position we're in, that we should be able to take leave when we need it. But pretty much it's just like, no, because you get summer, you're not going to be given the... Yeah. Uh, luxury of like choosing other times for no leave. i mean we get our 10 days total you get we our district we get six days of sick leave and i think four days of personal necessity wow and that's it so those are the only other days you can take um outside of the the holidays that we already get so you don't accrue any leave we don't accrue any i didn't leave. even know that. now you can save it so like if i let's say <laughs> If I don't use any of my PN time, which is probably not going to happen because I'm still very ill. Thanks a lot, Lincoln. But I, um, <laughs> if I, if let's say like I, I'm able to save my PN days, I they get accrued. Okay. Not that I can use them next school year, but they go towards like my retirement or something like that. Oh, they just pay you. Yeah, something like that. It's it's like it's like not. Yeah, it's a little different. But, wow. So. Um, so anyway, I think that it, I just think it would be if we worked year round and during the summer when schools, when schools are not in session, teachers were being trained, they were giving the time to collaborate, to prepare for the next school year. It would make the school year less exhausting. It would be less emotionally and mentally taxing to be completely prepared and not just prepared, but to have t spent the time to build the team cohesion that is necessary to keep a school up and running, to keep teachers cared for because then now we're taking care of each other because this is the the next thing that would come up is like well if, if teachers can take leave whenever they want what about the subs if you have a whole team of teachers who planned a curriculum together lesson plans policies and procedures together it doesn't matter who's subbing for that teacher that teaching team is going to take care of that plc is going right. to take care of that sub that sub could go to any english teacher let's say if it was happening at lincoln they could go to any other english teacher and we've got like 15 of them 17 of them at our school mm. 
and they could be my neighbor, uh, Mr. Freitas, and say, hey, I'm subbing for Miss Auseda. Um, I'm not sure. And Mr. Freitas could be like, hey, I know exactly what's going on. And this actually happened. I use him as an example because when he and I and another teacher got together last year, had the same prep, started collaborating together, I was out because of my illness again. And he took care of my sub. <laughs> and like, and he made sure my class was taken care of because we had planned the lesson together. And it just was so much more relieving for me knowing that my colleague had my back. It's it's just so insane for me to think about how this isn't the norm, how that's not already like that's not built into like the the program. You know, that's that should be a given that any teacher can do this. And what one of the the obstacles to turning to a let's say the district was down for that, which they aren't. Well, my district wouldn't be down for that, but let's say they were. They do have to go through the union process. So then there'd have to be a whole process of convincing members to want to do that. And we have a lot of old time teachers, especially that don't want to change. And teachers, I feel like generally are afraid of change. And I think it's not to talk down on teachers. I mean, it does bother me, but they've been tra they've been trained to be that way. They have been so mistreated hmm. and patronized and treated as if they're, I mean, not treated like professionals, treated like children who need to have to be you know watched all the time and told micromanaged they've been so micromanaged that the idea of doing a whole renovation of a whole new system is frightening for them because right. they have to learn a whole new way and it, we're in a position right now where we don't have time to learn a new anything right we never have time mm. so it's it would it would take a lot of convincing um it, it would take a lot of healing I think, I think a lot of teachers need to be healed from, it's traumatic, I think, the way that teachers have been. Some teachers that I've, and I've met and oh, yes. work with that have been teaching since the 90s, <clears throat> they tell me stories about how things were during a certain increment of like five to ten years, um, sometimes at the same school site, you know, right. and they're just like, this decade being at the school site was a dream. And then the following decade being at the school site was a nightmare. And it and and they carry that with them. You know, like there's a lot of fear I get from my colleagues who've been teaching for a long time of ad administrators. I talk about this a lot with a lot of my friends who are teachers. And I always wonder, like, why are people so afraid of their administrators? Um, and it's because in the past they've been mistreated. And I think we can resonate, that can resonate with us as from being from the military because there's toxic leadership in the military as well. And we've definitely met people that we've worked with or for who were like, someone hurt you and that's Shit. why you act like this. You know, like you, and in our case, usually they were taking out, taking it out on us. I find it really interesting too, though, that most administrators come from the classroom, but then once they become administrators, they're categorized separately. I mean, uh, in the military, you have officers and you have enlisted, but there isn't a separate, I think the separation is more distinct in the education field. Do you feel that way? Um, I think it's the same. Very similar. Yeah, because um, they actually literally will talk about teachers who become administrators as going to the dark side. And you know that that's what they say about yeah. NCOs who become officers or yeah. NC en enlisted soldiers yeah. who become officers. They say they went to the dark side. I think it's actually very much the same. I think what's different, though, is because the military 
the army, let's say, is one whole organization that no matter where you are in the world, there's basic policies that have to be followed. Right. Um, that I think is a benefit for how we navigate our relationships as officers and NCOs and enlisted soldiers, mm-hmm. because we know that the the policy is the same no matter where we are in the world. But literally, I can go from Lincoln Unified to Stockton Unified, mm. and it's not like that. And that can really create tension on how administrators and teachers are with each other. It can be different from, I mean... Just it, because the, the, the teacher's not familiar with the practices of the at that school district. Right. You could So if you go to a district that maybe is doing all the right things... Stockton Unified gets a lot of praise because they have a really strong union. <clears throat> and uh, apparently um, in most of their sites, not all of them, but there are school sites where their their admin and their union actually get along really well. And we don't see that in, at Lincoln so much. So um, if you had a Lincoln teacher go to one of these Stockton Unified schools with carrying that experience of not having a good relationship not trusting their admin Mm. they're going to take that with them to stockton and then it can happen vice versa i've met teachers who work for lincoln now that used to work for stockton unified and they'll say i've never had this like i had a great relationship with my admin i you know everything was great and and i trusted my administrators when i first came to this this school Mm. and they they stabbed my they stabbed me in the back so i'm thinking maybe about like the jump from the jump from teacher to admin is kind of like going from enlisted to like becoming a field grade possibly because i know at least because i was a junior officer um i had a very strong connection to all my you know soldiers and people that were assigned to me never felt like i mean there was rarely a, a, a situation where i felt like you know we were we it would were be really like, that separate. It would be like your first position as an admin is usually as, as an assistant. So that's kind of like being an, an executive officer of a battalion. Exactly. Going, exactly. But going from like, I wouldn't say an enlisted, but maybe going from like an E5 to yeah. a, a major who's an executive yeah, an exactly. XO of a battalion. That's yeah. a pretty big jump. Yeah. So uh, for those unfamiliar with <laughs> any of this <laughs> jargon, basically it's like, Someone who's been working in the military for over, I mean, around seven or seven to ten years, right? So it's like, let's just say between, yeah, between eight and ten years, okay? And I guess, is there is there usually like a, a what was what's the requirement in terms of time as a teacher before becoming an admin? So you have to have, in the state of California at least, because it also varies by state. Mm-hmm. So in, in California, you have to have been in the classroom for five years, and then you have to get, you have to have a um, admin credential. Okay, right. And then then there are teachers who, who can, who basically just stay in the classroom their entire career, and that can be 20 or 30 years, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes more than 30. Right. And I think it's pretty wild to think that an admin would be able to do, I don't know, I just, it seems like a lot, a lot of responsibility without like a standard of uh, necessarily a preparation. Yeah. Like they, you, you have to have a master. Oh, that was the other thing. You have to have a master's degree. So you like go to college and get your master's degree and then you get a, a credential, which is supposed to be training and being an administrative leader but of course it's not going to be like what the kind of leadership training we get in the military 
So, like, I tell people all the time that I work with, I'm like, the thing that I don't know if people understand about the military is that we sprinkle leadership on our Wheaties for breakfast every morning. Like, leadership is a part of everything we do. Right. When we're training, it, we're not just sitting in a classroom learning about leadership theory. We learn about theory, and then we practice actual leadership decision-making through our training right and and we're and we're usually for in the army we do it with battle drills and i think there's something to be said about practicing your leadership abilities with um physical work right i think that it takes us back to like our primitive selves when we're doing physical right. work even the physical aspect of like being put in a scenario and having to act it out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so people who are listening, if you don't know, like we will literally recreate scenarios as if we're on the battlefield and we'll have some soldiers will be op oppositional forces or op four. And so they pretend to be the enemy and they dress up and everything. And then we have our soldiers who are training fight them like and scenarios are created and the soldiers who are training for the battle drills is what we call them they don't know what battle drill they're going to have to do so like in the classroom we might learn about like read about the battle drills in in our field manual and then we might even do a sand table which is basically like a little model of the battlefield and we use little you know uh, pieces like little dolls or rocks or something to act out the different scenarios and battle drills and then we take it to an actual field and and then op four will pretend to attack to attack us in a certain way and we have to make a quick decision response and react back and using one of the battle drills we learned and what they're looking for i mean one thing of course they want to see if we did the battle drill correctly but more so they're looking at how did we handle the situation how are we making quick decisions how are we organizing our team? How are we building cohesion with our team? You know what? Even as an RA, I, I was an RA back in college. One of the, one of the like final uh, evaluations was of uh, scenarios. So they, I forget what they called it, but it was like a, it was like a they they took an entire uh, dorm building, and every room had some kind of wild scenario where you had to like action. You know, act it out you had to it's role play role play exactly have you heard of a school that would that has trained that way for no. like teachers or or no. admin i think role playing for teachers would be amazing and yeah. definitely for administrators yeah i think like role and i guess that's essentially what we're talking about yeah, yeah. is when we do battle drill training and field training it's a role play it's yeah. a giant expensive role playing it's an rpg <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just <laughs> and like but that's exactly what it is it's like we don't just read about it we don't just look at case it although we do look i think case studies are very important yeah yeah um but we also role play like we're and then yeah. people are evaluating us and they're watching us and then once we do the and everybody gets a chance to be the leader right. in a scenario and then we have to go back with a, a senior leader who's also an evaluator and they're going to give us feedback i think an easy way to translate this is like if you can imagine a fire drill and having to actually do a fire drill. Everyone has to go outside. Everyone knows there's no fire. Right. But everyone has to do everything you would have done. You all had to line up. You take attendance. And if yeah. I would add, though, if after the fire drill, fire drill, you were back briefed on how you did. Right. You have to discuss like, okay, what went well and what could have been improved on that fire drill. Well, I think the more complex you make the fire situation, mm -hmm. obviously, there'd be more to talk about. But... 
um, yeah, you'd have the there's a great work that goes into developing the scenario. And I think that's probably like where mm -hmm. I guess leadership would come in if that was something that um, you were trying to get your staff to be uh, capable of doing. You'd have to develop scenarios. You'd have to, um, I mean, this actually sounds like a great idea, but like, <laughs> I wish I mean, that would be a thing. I think about like, yeah, like it would be great. Like for teachers, just at a teacher level, like if you have a situation with a student in the classroom, right. it, and there's so many different situations, like it could be emergency situations, sure. but it could also be basic, basic ones. Yeah. Like you have a student who, I mean, I hear stories about this a lot. Some of the um, teacher influencers I follow, there's yeah. one, and I wish I remembered her name, but she's, I follow her on Twitter and she talks so she put a story up the other day she had a student that wasn't doing work and actually had uh, put her head down and she could see like she had put her head down on the screen and so she just let it go and was like i'm going to talk to her later so after class um she uh said hey like i noticed your head is down what's going on and um the student and they were alone so like everybody else was out of the room and then the student had said that um the one of the parents had kicked out the other parent the night before oh. and that she was she didn't think she was ever going to see that parent again because mm. they had been having issues or whatever like it was like a domestic violence issue and it was like all this stuff and so she was like if i would have called that student out and been like hey you need to get your head up and da 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 that student's already going through trauma. I would have devastated that student right. even further. Instead, I'd let the student tell me what was going on. And then the next day when she came back, she got her, her work in and she apologized. Right. And, you know, and so it's like little situations like that. Like you could role play those situations. You have a student who doesn't want to take their their hood off in class, which I a teacher at my school. Mm hmm. <laughs> I had a, a, a teacher took on a subbing for a class for me one time when I was out. And I, when he came in, one of my students had her hood on, which I actually honestly do not care if they have their hood on in class. I don't, I know some teachers like, eh, I don't, I don't micromanage my kids. So I'm not apologizing for that. Um, but he didn't like it. He told her to take her hood off. Um, she wasn't feeling well. And she just was like, no, I don't, I don't want to. And he kept getting on her. And then he asked for her name. She wouldn't give her name. He asked the class for her name. They were like, we don't know her name. She never talks. Like, we really don't know who she is. Oh my God. And he, it escalated. She got suspended. This girl was not the student that I would ever suspend. Like, she was super quiet. I had both her and her sister. They were transfers from Stockton Unified. Like, they, they were both struggling academically. Um, I had met their mother a couple times and she and I had had a little bit of, of tension between us, but we came to an understanding and I kind of understand why the kids struggled. I was like, all right, your mom's a little intense. <laughs> like, but And like, and I had a relationship with them that worked for me. And if she would have came in with her head hood on and I had been there and she put her head down, I wouldn't have given it a second thought until after class and been like, hey, what's up? But he decided to die on that hill and he got her suspended. And she was only suspended for a day. And she told me because the AP, when she went to talk to the AP, she was very honest about what was going on. Um, I think she ended up cussing him out. But she was quiet. This girl never talked. And and then the class told me, too. They were like, they when I came back the next day, they told me what had happened. I had also gotten messages on Remind. They were like, hey, this sub is tripping. Like, he's over here. Mm. Like, the quietest girl in our class just got suspended. Like, she never talks to anybody. And mm. she doesn't do anything. And then he just suspended her. I'm, I'm still mad at him to this day. I never confronted him. But and I know exactly what sub it was and I don't know. But anyway, 
I don't ever want him to sub for me again. And if you're listening, you know who you are. Don't ever <laughs> sub for my class again. Um, because he got the quietest girl in the most. She came from an unstable home, mm-hmm. single parent home. She struggled that they were they were free and reduced lunch kids. Like she wore her hood in the class. Like get over it. You know, like I don't know. So some anyway, are, yeah, those are the kind of things that need to be role played. Like he. He he gaslighted my student basically. He pushed her over the edge until she snapped, and then he made it her fault, you know. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, it's interesting because like when you hear that story, you think like, all right, this is some basic level stuff. Most people should be able to figure out, and it will be like, because everyone's been in a training of some sort where it's like, okay, everybody play the roles, and then like people are like, kind of just. You know, halfway, you know, half acid, basically. Well, now I could see how you could really develop that scenario. And I could see a lot of people failing that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because that's, you know what that's called? De-escalation training. Yeah. Like, oh, no, and sure. that is difficult. If you've never been in a situation where it's tense and you can choose escalation or de-escalation, uh, if you're in a position of power, you're usually gonna escalate it because you know that you're gonna you're gonna have the bigger authority. Um, so it's very tempting to just do what's easiest. It's tempting to if you take it personal and you yep. let a teenager get under your skin. Yep. Yeah, you're gonna do something stupid. A lot of people will fail that test. You're gonna get a, <laughs> a quiet kid from a traumatic home life suspended. Yeah. And that was what it was for me because it was one of those situations. I did because I, I remember initially I wanted to get his side of the story, but I remember I was so angry because the student he got suspended mm-hmm. was enough for me to know that he was on the wrong. Right. If it had been any other student, and even in fact one of the students I thought would he would get suspended for right. mouthing off told me she goes I'm surprised she's like I cannot believe he got her in trouble. I'm the one who should be getting in trouble because I would have punched him in the face. Like she was like straight up I'm the one who gets suspended in this class. <laughs> Not that little girl who doesn't talk to nobody. Right. And so, like... Situational awareness. Situational awareness. So, yeah, yeah, what would be so cool, I could see see the scenario built this way. There's, like, a whole packet, and each each student has a packet, and every teacher has a read-through, and then, like, then the scenario is played out. And then you find out who actually did their homework and try to find out, like, about each character before going into it. Mm -hmm. And I think you would see, like, man there's a there's rooms to improve here yeah you know there's there's plenty of room to improve and i um it's it's really interesting because like the value in that type of training i think is overlooked when it's done well because there's two there's a lot of examples like i said everyone's kind of been to a training where they try to do role playing and it's always like so you know well i say always if it's done poorly then it's always like uh that i mean you know it's cheesy no one really gets anything out of it but when you have a really great scenario built and there are people who are really uh, you know playing the role yeah it can be really informative and i think really valuable probably more valuable than any other because it's a rehearsal essentially yeah it is. you're talking about doing hands-on rehearsals and going through the contingencies real time and then having to assess your performance afterwards i mean that's like I mean, how how much how, how much better does it get? If yeah. you can do that, you're doing it right. <laughs> like you're gonna you're gonna do better, in my opinion, for sure. And how do we make time for that? We work the whole year. That's my <laughs> argument. We work the whole twelve months. Yeah. We get more uh, professional 
leave policies in place right. that are not ableist and that are more in line with who we are as professionals where we get to choose and request and it's not like a free-for-all like i said there's a process that right. a lot of organizations go through in order for you to request your leave and it can be denied but the policies are very straightforward and transparent everybody understands how the procedures work hmm. and so that when you're transparent there's less room for corruption I think any plan is, I know any any plan you come up with is always going to have the possibility of corruption. There's always going to be somebody who just wants to create chaos and not do the right thing. So I'm not saying, because I feel like this comes up sometimes where it's like, well, then people are going to do this and then people are going to do that. Like, oh, people are going to do the wrong thing. Like, they're not doing the wrong thing now. Well, like, that's dumb. That's sharpshooting. Like, anytime yeah. you try to sharpshoot a plan, you can find a problem with any plan right it's a dumb like no and they do i find a lot of teachers do that in admin like they and it's just because they just don't want to change the bottom line is a lot of people just don't want to change yeah and i didn't like i said earlier i think that there are some environmental reasons for that that really need to be reconsidered as in terms of the culture of the educational industry yeah um but at the same time we also need to hold ourselves accountable too like i think that Everybody has a responsibility to reflect on why do you feel the way you feel about this situation and to be honest about it. If there are environmental factors, then that deserves to be validated. But if there's also internal factors where you're just stubbornly holding on to something because you're scared, then you need to stop being a wimp. Well, I think it's <laughs> it's also like this. If it's allowed, if, if they're allowed to just say, no, we're not doing it, then yeah, it's the problem. But if, if if there was a authority that says, no, actually, you need to do it, I'm just giving you the opportunity to figure out how to do it. But the question of like changing, that's not an option. Like you're right. going to change. Right. So uh, I find that interesting. Like, um, yeah, it's never it's never the case, at least for me, it was never the case in the military where you're like, they're like, here's the mission. You're like, nope, not going to do the mission. <laughs> it's yeah, not, no. no, you got the mission. Figure out how, you know, there might be some area there where you can figure out the details so that it'll it'll be accomplished in a way, in a fashion that will, you know, it will highlight your strengths. But you're not going to just say no. That's just not an option to say, uh, sharpshoot, sharpshoot, sharpshoot. We're just not going to do it at all. Right. It's not an option. No, you will do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, like, people don't know, like, yeah, we, especially for the officers, because we were officers, like, officers are treated mo for the most part there's we've we my husband and i here have both experienced being in organizations and units in the army where we were not treated very well but generally officers are entrusted with the ability to make decisions so like what you're saying you get a mission you get the intent you get the purpose um you get you're given all the basic info like here's the resources that are available to you Here's the timeline in which things need to get done. Here's what needs to get done. Here's the reason why we need it to get done. Let us know what your plan is going to be. And then everything, so we feel we're given the blueprint and then the officers figure out everything in between. And we do it with the, with the NCO advisors. And I think that kind of brings up something else I think is missing is um, we have instructional coaches, but it's handled in a very poor and an ineffective way. And I remember um, a teacher that I used to work with, she retired. Melinda told me, I don't know if she listens, but I love you. Um, she <laughs> had brought up one time as she was in her last year before retirement. And she said, you know, if the district had ever come to me and said, you know what? Do you mind teaching at a 20 percent 
And then for the other 80%, you're going to spend time coaching teachers. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, it just like, she's like, imagine like if you just kept me, had me teach two classes a day. Mm -hmm. And then the rest, the other three classes, I'm in the classroom with a new teacher as a master teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, just overseeing their lessons walking them through like modeling things for them like and that's how i spent the the, a third of my day was just going from classroom to classroom working directly with new teachers to help them find their craft yeah she's like i would have took that job in a second it's a that sounds like a a real need that should be filled and i and i remember we talked about it i was like how cool would it be if there was an instructional coach who was just that a veteran teacher had a certain amount of time in you put them at 20%, so they teach two classes. They spend the other three plus their prep working on coaching right. young new teachers in each department. You had one for English, for social studies, for science at each school site, right? And so I, our, our high school is big, so we would need one for each content area. But then the elementary schools, you had one for the, you know, the kindergarten teacher or whatever. Like something, like how much better your teachers would be? Like how and how much more retention you would have because we talked about this with daniel like it within the first five years determines if a teacher stays in the career if you have them paired up with a master teacher who's still practicing her craft two times a day right to keep her fresh that was kind of our thought process behind that like if she still taught two classes she's keeping her practices fresh Mm -hmm. while also mentoring another teacher and working with the you the new younger you're gonna you're gonna increase retention you're going to increase effectiveness. You're going to increase the mental and emotional health of your teachers. Right. That's going to make them better in the classroom. You know I mean, again, the adult in the room should be taken care of. Like, bottom line, like, you're not taking care of students if you're not taking care of the adult in the room. Like, how, I don't know why, I don't know how districts and boards have the audacity to turn around and accuse teachers of being selfish for wanting to be cared for. Without and because oh you're not thinking you're like we're here for the students you're not here for the students you're here for yourself, I can't be here for the students if I'm not here for myself. Right. What are you talking about right now? You know, like yeah. it's just it's crazy to me. You know, I think there's also a misconception about what is, like, what has changed since they were in the classroom. A lot of the, a lot of these perspectives I feel coming mm-hmm. from people who are in leadership positions don't even know what are the like what is it like to be in that classroom learning the new standard uh, i mean i'm imagining half of them didn't have cell phones when they were in school you know what i mean like well, and I most mean, people that, that yeah. brings a good point too because common core came out just not that long ago exactly so a lot of these admin who are overseeing and t- even if they were smart on like the, the updates even if they had some sort of understanding or they've seen it mm-hmm. It's likely they're not ever going to actually teach it or have taught it. Right. And that's the bottom line. Like, you aren't really speaking from any position of experience. Your legitimacy is limited to sort of these general concepts. Like, why can't you just listen and try to learn from what your teachers on the ground are saying? Boots on the ground, to use a term, Mm -hmm. military term again. Like, what's what's the deal with being so like automatically on defense why do you have why is it an antagonistic sort of situation when when it's like hey we need something why is it always like no you don't (laughs) like versus like oh help me understand what it is and then maybe we'll find out 
how, like maybe whatever you're asking for we don't have but maybe there's something else we exactly. do have that we can give exactly. you it's never like that it's always like no you don't need it yeah that's <laughs> exactly what it is no what is that like, you're just complaining you need to know how to budget this is things that we've actually had witnesses see a school board say about teachers right when they talk about like wanting a higher salary they're like well you the teachers just need to learn how to budget or that they're it's just so, complaining so wrong. that teachers are just complaining that they're not going to do if 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 you give them too much then they're not going to they're not going to do anything like you know it's just it's crazy to me the level of opposition there is towards teachers and the lack of regard for what that says about what you think of students so it's like basically you think that you can have a unhealthy disgruntled stressed out teacher in the room and those kids are going to be okay like yeah. you really think so here's my beef with okay so this is kind of we're going to branch out a little bit in this conversation right now because i think we've, we're kind of been we've been hitting this a lot yeah. but this occurred to me the idea that i'm going to present occurred to me when victoria started going to school when our daughter started going to school mm -hmm. okay so our daughter started going to school out here, San Joaquin County, and it was like, it just all clicked. I said, I was like, so we live out here, San Joaquin County, and this is our neighborhood, and these are the schools around us, and I was like, and these schools are different from the other schools. Why? Like the other school across the street, or the other school down across town, or mm -hmm. the other school in the next district. And why did you know what makes a school stand out? You know, why are people like, why is it such a big deal to have like the option to go to another school? Why, you know, and, and all these questions started circulating. I know it might, might be something very obvious to people who are, who are familiar with the issue, but at the time, for me, I was like, new dad, <laughs> you know, just trying to figure it out. And I started realizing, like, oh, like the best schools really are still sort of designed around the wealthiest communities and or at least at least that's sort of how it's been set up and maybe there are there are exceptions to that but for the most part it's like yeah people sort of uh, sort of understand this or it's sort of unspoken the fact is like okay if you go to River Island, you're going to have like the what's considered the most desirable school. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, it happens to be the wealthiest community in our in our part of town. Okay. Well, how is that how's that kind of uh, equitable, right? How's It's not. <laughs> but like isn't that something that we're all aware that is a like a necessary thing in society that we should have? something at least similar to that available to everybody in the community well not really it's like well so then i start really thinking about that like how how are these schools considered public schools under the same district so different from one another and that has really blown my mind like ever since i started thinking that way because like entire communities not just a neighborhood but cities and even counties uh, have been designed in such a way it's like you know this is where this is sort of where we're filtering we're taking the whole group of people and we're saying this is the spot where you're going to get your best chance 
and it's it's like very I don't know, it really started making me think more and more about, well, as a system, you know, what, what's it really, what, what are we really achieving then? You know, if we're not really trying to make it so that everything is an equal opportunity or you know, it's going to provide that equal opportunity, you know, what's, what's really our optimal outcome here um, in reality? And it's just like, well... You can, at minimum, you're going to get, like, you're gonna just going to get the standards presented and you're going to, you're going to maybe, you're going to maybe get, like, a good enough situation where other opportunities will arise. But you're, you shouldn't look for, like, the real opportunities are not going to come out of going to your, you know, your public school K through 12. Like, you should, you should work hard enough to, like, when you graduate high school, then you're going to be able to, like, look for other opportunities and set yourself apart to do whatever your career is going to be. <clears throat> but it never occurred to me, though, that that was the case. I always used to think, like, you know, everybody is going to get a great opportunity out of just completing their high school in, in America. <laughs> Maybe that's like an immigrant thing, too. Because <laughs> my parents were always just like, just finish school and well, then just also... go get a job, like, right? Like, go yeah. go work in healthcare. And, like. <laughs> So yeah, so I had a very I guess yeah because naive I definitely I went to because I went to school so I actually started kindergarten through fourth grade in Lincoln Unified I went to TCK mm-hmm. and then I went to French Camp Elementary and um, that was from fifth grade through eighth grade and um, yeah no I was very aware so TCK even to this day is not considered one of the top performing Lincoln schools, although it does perform very well in terms of in comparison to the whole county or the city. It performs fairly well, um, but for Lincoln, within Lincoln, it's one of the lower performing ones. And um, and then when I went to French camp, French camp was very low. And um, it just always was really obvious to me that like we, I was going to the schools that were not considered the best. And um, when I was in high school, I remember actually a counselor had told me that um, we were, I lived near Sequoia Elementary when I was in high school. And we were driving over there for a presentation. Uh, the counselor had taken myself and a couple ROTC students to do some kind of ROTC presentation for, um, you know, when the counselors come on the middle school campuses to talk about high school or whatever they wanted us to come so so we go do this and um we were driving up and i was like oh i live right over here and then i remember the counselor goes oh he's like you went to this school and i go no i went to i actually went to french camp like we just moved here a few years ago to this part of town and he goes oh he's i'll see i thought you went to the white ghetto but you actually went to the mexican ghetto because French camp was known as the Mexican ghetto and Sequoia was known as the white ghetto because both French camp and Sequoia had very high low income student population but Sequoia was mostly white and French camp was mostly Mexican and that's because we had the migrant program as well so the migrant workers kids came to school um, during a different year I mean not a different year but they had a different track that followed the harvest season um, so they could they could get their education you know fully Right. Even though they were they were in school in the summer, but they were gone in the winter. Right. So um, we had a high population, and even even without them, we had a high population of Hispanic students. The Hispanic American students were there too. So, so French camp was the Mexican ghetto. Sequoia was the white ghetto. Right. 
and within Manteca Unified. And, um, and I, I don't, I, I'm sure it's not changed much today. Well, yeah, the integration obviously is, is, is still something that we have to figure out because we have not figured it out. But there's, you know, that socioeconomic integration still, I mean, I think that's a huge part well, of yeah, it too. So, so anyway, that, that, that does bring that up to too. It's uh, schooling, how schools perform and how they're funded is directly tied to the housing. Like exactly. we, and we know that like housing, um, if we made housing more equitable and, you know, city planning was more equitable and, and where houses are built and low income houses and apartments and things like that. Next family, yeah. It would change yeah. the whole um, atmosphere for schools. Exactly. And, and exactly. The, the two are directly connected. And sure, you know, French Camp Elementary is located in French Camp, the town. There are some wealthy people in French Camp, but then there's also some really poor people in French Camp. Yeah, but and, where, where the wealthy ones send their kids to school? <laughs> I don't think they're not they saying going to French camp. They're not probably St. Anthony's to be there honest. There you go. See, and I think that's kind of what was was dawning on me as we're here in this county looking at the differences, stark differences between a district or even within a school site within a district at different school sites. I was like, so what is this talk of a meritocracy? You know, how are you supposed to actually just oh yeah, pick yourself up and, and do hard work? You're at such a disadvantage just within the same district. Like, it just blew my mind. I was like, how? this is so unfair. I don't understand, like, how this came to be and how long this has existed. But I was like, I don't know. It just it just started, started me on this path of, like, trying to understand more and more and more about what is the what are the underlying reasons for how we got here. And, and I think one of the reasons why... Rosie and I can literally just sit for hours talking about <laughs> like education and the history of education for, and you know this we're here today. <laughs> well, I think that brought up something I wanted to mention because you had asked about how long has the school system been like this, and there's actually a really popular um, this man. I think it's Sir Ken Rob Roberts Robertson. Roberts, hmm. he talks about he's all he talks about the school system like that's his whole thing. I remember it. TED he, Talk, right? He has a TED Talk. Yeah, he yeah. also was in uh, the um, he was in a documentary. Waiting uh, for Superman. Not waiting for Superman. Oh. It was um, oh my gosh, I can't remember. We actually watched it at our school. Um, I think you showed it to me. Something to fail or something with fail or I don't remember. It was like. It features high tech high and a couple innovative schools and then it talks about it it basically talks about how schools are like stressful like they create a lot of mental distress on Mm -hmm. students at a very early age and um and that basically he talks and so his thing is he talks about how schools have not changed over 100 years and that they were developed for um they were they were basically developed to train kids to become assembly line workers, and right. that's what we still do to this day. Even though we don't have that many assembly lines, we don't have that many assembly lines. <laughs> There's predictions that many experts are making that a lot of the jobs that we have right now, we've already lost jobs to automation, and we're about to lose more to automation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're losing cashiers. Yep. So. Like I, you know, and that we're not setting our students up for the success they need to be a 21st century adult and leader where soft skills are going to be superior. 
So like being able to be a leader, um, having critical thinking skills, problem solving skills, time management, um, communication, team building, you know, like those, all these soft skills, weren't, how are we training them with the model that we have now where we have them sit in rows or maybe not because my classroom, they don't sit in rows. <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna do when we come back because I have group tables. I don't have single tables, but I, you know, like, we have to cram them into this classroom. We're expected to stay in that classroom. Um, and we, I mean, it's the same model that we've been using all these years. It just doesn't make any sense. And and I think we talked about it with Jordan when we interviewed him. Like, I want to work at one of these innovative schools yes. so badly. Yes. Because that's the kind, of, I feel like I would be my best self as a teacher if I was at one of these schools. And, I know you will. And, <laughs> and they'll tell you, because I've talked to teachers who work at these innovative schools. When I was in my master program, I would go interview these teachers and they would tell you, like, I've worked harder as a teacher than I've ever had in my career. But they'll also say, I would not change my job for the world this is even though i'm working harder as a teacher than i ever had i feel fulfilled i feel productive i feel like my mental health is better right because they have more autonomy they're right. being treated like professionals they're being able to teach in a way that's effective they're not sitting in a classroom for one class period at a time for five times you know they're walking around the buildings are literally designed to for kids and teachers the bottom to, up yeah, to, to get mm -hmm. up and walk around. And there's not like traditional classrooms. They have workshops and maker spaces and they have, you know, um, their libraries look different. Their study rooms look different. Like everything is, their lunch schedules look different. I know there's schools where they actually, for a school year, they'll be put into a cohort that they stick with the whole time. And that cohort is overseen by a teacher. Mm -hmm. And the cohort decides when they take breaks and when they have lunch. So lunch is not happening at the same time for every single student. It's dictated by the cohort. Oh, yeah. And then and then they and then they work on project based learning and the teacher is um, a facilitator of learning because that's the other thing too, with the internet and technology, we're not keepers of knowledge anymore. To me, project based learning is probably the most beautiful thing I've seen yeah. that's come out of all the different innovations. I think it's just I think we're really, this is not going to be a profound prediction whatsoever, but I think we have seen enough of these pioneers, these trailblazers going up and, and kind of creating the, the, uh, the idea or the example of what things could be that we're going to witness in our lifetime. This is, I guess this is the prediction really. In my lifetime, I anticipate seeing there being a, a big shift uh, in the way that things are done. And it might be partially due to the fact that we're seeing it happen right now with a pandemic and having uh, people um, online teaching and, and hybrid teaching. And they're forced, like we were saying earlier, there's no, no, we're not going to do it. Well, hey, guess what? This is the mission now. Yeah. You do have to adjust. And people are finding out, like, there are things that we can do to make make teaching more effective and it doesn't doesn't necessarily have to look like it used to right <laughs> so i think we're really we're we're lucky or i mean i feel lucky that we're living in this time and that we have this to look forward to and and i actually think that part of the reason why this podcast does have um a role in the movement and why it is important is because I think we're we're, we're going to connect those people. We're going to connect these ideas. We're sort of bringing together 
the community connecting the dots so that this can actually happen and and this this is probably the main reason why uh when i made my nomination for my my lovely wife here <laughs> that uh i can see why they chose her i mean um i this is i don't know this is the most uh important work in my in my mind the most important work for our country uh and and definitely in this community very very important work um and i like i said i'm 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 just very proud of all the accomplishments uh of of teachers and i'm very proud of my wife and this is my love letter to her now <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. But yeah, you know, we're about an hour and a half in. Yeah, that's good I know. enough. I feel like this was less of an interview, more of me ranting. <laughs> Every interview like, is of the guest ranting. So I guess so. I <laughs> like to get people ranting. I, <laughs> so. I guess I could see that. I mean, it's late. I we just had grades due on Friday, which puts us all in a bad mood. And like, yeah, I don't know. I think it was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> That's what gets you fired up. Now you kind of know. Now you understand the madness. <laughs> <laughs> the method and the madness. <laughs> the method yeah, and the madness. There we go. If anybody wants to start an innovative school, I'm willing to be uh, your first teacher <laughs> in Stockton. Yeah, and I'll be a supporter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. Maybe one day. <laughs> All right, thank you. That's it. Thank you so much for listening to Educators Not Robots. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you access your podcasts on and leave us a review. Whenever we get reviews, it helps boost visibility for our podcast and so we can draw in more listeners. Thanks again for your support and we hope that you listen again soon.